right. John 17. Let's get after it. We're going to be looking at 19 verses tonight. Okay, 19 verses. I did find in my uh, preparation this week that on this very passage, there was at least one guy, um, Irish preacher, Marcus Rainsford. He wrote more than 500 pages about this section that we're talking about tonight. So buckle up. Well, I'm not joking about that, but let me do tell you how important this passage is. Uh, One of the reformers, Philip Melanchthon, who was kind of a contemporary of Martin Luther, he said this about this passage. He said, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or on earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. That's what we got before us tonight. John 17, Jesus is his prayer. It was also a passage that was very dear to Scottish reformer John Knox. He had this passage He read it and then had it read to him in his final illness and in his final moments. And other people have gone so far as to call this passage the holy of holies of sacred scripture because of the way that Jesus bears his heart. So this is a special passage. We are going to break our study of it into two messages. We'll do two points tonight and one point in the near future. And we are going to tackle these first 19 verses. Only got two points. I want to give you the first one straight out of the gate. And that is from verses 1 through 5. And that is Jesus prays for himself. Let's take a look at it. When Jesus had spoken these words, so everything we've been looking at in the past couple of weeks, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And so that was kind of the typical posture of prayer at that time. And he said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. Now, let's work backwards on this. First thing to notice here is that this is a clear claim to deity for Jesus. We've seen so many of these through the book of John, and so anytime I hear that old chestnut from the far left liberal scholarship community saying, oh, Jesus didn't claim to be God. He, 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 it was something that was foisted upon him. They're just not reading the same Bible that we are. Time after time after time, page after page after page, Jesus clearly asserts his own deity. This passage is yet another example. Also, go back to the first part of this and notice this phrase. He says, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you've been with us through the book, you know that Jesus has used this language before, but how does he typically use it? He says the hour has not yet come. The hour is not yet here. He said that repeatedly. And that uh, finally began to change, chapter 12, verse 27, that the hour was coming. And here in chapter 17, everything has fallen into place. And now the hour has come. And the hour that he is talking about is for him to be to sacrifice for our sins and to take the next step in the work of redemption. So wasn't time, wasn't time, time is coming, now time is here. And I think there's a little bit of application that we can make even out of that here. The first one uh, is to just be reminded that God doesn't keep, uh, does in fact keep his promises. He keeps his promises because he has said for millennia, this is what's going to happen. And then here it happens just as he said. 
Then on top of that, notice the precise timing of Jesus. It's not some willy-nilly chase throughout history that he's on, but he's operating on a specific plan and at a specific time, and here we see that begin to be revealed. And I think that's helpful to us on a practical sense because for so many of us, we are trying to make sense of what God is doing in our lives. Maybe we are trying to discern, is there some next step that God wants us to take? Could be a house, could be a car, could be switching jobs, anything like that. And so many times we want God to just tell us what to do. But what we have to remember is his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And that waiting is just part of the equation. But Jesus has a very specific time schedule that he is working on. We've seen it repeatedly throughout the book. And here we see it yet again. So hang in there. Jesus knows what he's doing. Now, look at this. He also says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And then he goes further than that. And he says, I glorified you here on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, let's talk a little bit about his phraseology here about glorify your son. Now, when we talk about glory and being glorified, a couple of things to remember here. First, it's a noun. And then second, it's a verb. And what I mean by that is the word glory is a noun that is kind of an encapsulation of God's majesty and his splendor. His display of divine goodness is what D.A. Carson says about it. So when we talk about Jesus being glorified, we are talking about the appropriate human response to God's glory, his goodness being displayed. So when Jesus is saying that, he's saying, I had this glory in heaven. I've laid it aside during this period when I came here and took on flesh and walked among the people, so on and so forth. And then he knows the most awful thing that could happen to anybody is about to happen. And then he's praying that God would restore that former glory that he enjoyed in heaven back to him after the crucifixion. And the reason why that is so significant is because of the nature of the crucifixion it is itself. It's not just an object of torture. It's not just something that the Romans came up with to inflict pain on the victim of it. But it was also a sign of God's displeasure. That was in Deuteronomy uh, 21 and also Galatians 3. And so what Jesus is saying here is, Lord, solve the problem that's about to happen when I become cursed on that tree. Take me back to the way it was. Glorify your son with the glory that I experienced before the world began. And that is significant because it again shows the glory and the divinity of Jesus. That he wasn't just some guy. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just an inspiring ancient TED Talk giver. But he was and is God. Jesus knew who he was. We need to know who he is as well. Now, I also think that it is significant, the connection that he makes here with eternal life. Look here in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, I think many of us, when we think about eternal life, we think of it kind of monocularly, monodimensionally, if you want to think of it that way. That eternal life is going to heaven when you die and not going to hell when you die. Now, that's true. That is one understanding of eternal life. But how does Jesus define it here? Look back at it. This is eternal life that they know you. So eternal life for the Christian is far more than simply avoiding hell at the end. It is a relationship with the true and everlasting God. It is forever delighting in the manifold glory of God. It is rejoicing forever in the presence of God. It is experiencing that little taste that we had just a minute ago when we sing those songs and we, we, there's something that happens in the room when you worship God. It's that forever knowing God is eternal life. So yes, it is missing hell, but it is also knowing the one that created heaven. So I think a couple of questions of application here. First one, and perhaps the most central one, is have you ever come to the place where you realized that what every Christian in all of history has come to realize, and that is that God is real, that heaven and hell are real, and you cannot work yourself there. That was my plan before I became a Christian. I was going to try to be good enough and hope that God graded on a curve and that I, I would do enough good and that would outweigh the bad and that would get me in. But when you really study the Bible, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all of our good works are as filthy rags. And the only way that we can experience the type of eternal life that Jesus is describing here is to own up to that sin, acknowledge that we're sinners, and ask Jesus to save us. To have all of his goodness and righteousness credited on our account and receive his free gift of grace. That's how we experience eternal life. Not by working hard and trying to be good, but by recognizing we can't be good enough and only the goodness of God can save us. And friend, if you've never experienced the love of God in a personal way tonight that caused you from trying to save yourself to realizing only Jesus can save you, then let today be the day of salvation. May tonight be the night that eternal life of knowing God begins for you. And in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, we will offer a time where you can do just that. But you need to know, God loves you enough to tell you the truth, and eternal life is knowing him, and you need to respond to his grace gift. Now, beyond that, for those who've already made that turn, let me ask this question. When you think of eternal life, does it have the proper multidimensionality to it? Do you think of it as, hey, I'm skipping hell, or does it really go into, it is also about knowing and enjoying God? I think part of what the Lord wants to do with this passage for us tonight is to enlarge the border of our understanding help us really appreciate what eternal life is about and that it begins now. Now, one final thing I would point out here as well, 
is this notion of glory that he is talking about here, clearly it's a big deal. It's such a big deal out of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for there on the home stretch of his life. This is one of the chief things that he includes. Some of the smartest people that we've ever had on the Christian team wrote this thing called the Westminster Catechism, and they talked about the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the number one thing, to glorify God. And so I think a good question we could ask ourselves here on this front is, when we think about our lives, is that the banner that we're lining up under? Is that the motive for why we work hard at work? For why we seek to do the best we can in whatever art we try to create? And why we do what we do as parents and as grandparents and so on? Jesus is inviting us into the single greatest pursuit in all of history, and that is the pursuit of his glory. So anywhere in our lives that doesn't line up for that, let's listen to the gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit as he recalibrates us tonight through this passage. We need to seek the glory of God just as Jesus did. So that's a little bit about verses 1 through 5. Jesus praying for himself. Let's turn our attention now to verses 6 through 19, where Jesus prays for his disciples. And he says this, he said, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. So a couple things to notice here. One of them we just saw. Again, there's no mistake that Jesus believes that he is from God and is God. I don't think there's any linguistic way to interpret that and come to a different conclusion. You might not like it, you might not agree with it, but intellectual honesty of the words would say it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying there. Now beyond that, also look back at the connection he makes of who these disciples, in the end, who they really belonged to. They were his, but ultimately who were they? They, they belonged to God the Father. So again, there's that inextricable link that we have seen throughout the book of John of Jesus tying himself to God the Father. And also notice this, the way he talks about it, he, he talks about this three times, so we know this is important. They've been given to Jesus by the Father. Verse 2, verse 6, verse 9. He, they've been given to him as a gift. And it's also interesting, too, the, the, the verb tense that's used here, have given, it's the perfect tense, there was an action in the past that has results that continue in the present. And of course, we know it carries on to the future. So this, again, I think is somewhat of a little insight into, into the doctrine of election. That God has chosen these folks out. They've been given to Jesus. And thankfully, they have listened and responded. And let me give you some good news here for us from a gospel standpoint. What is true for them is true for us. 
you're here tonight and you were listening to the word and you want to hear the word and you want to grow in the word, that is evidence that God has worked and is at work in your life. That should well up within us a sense of gratitude. That should give us a, a sense of perspective. It should remind us that we are not alone in this world. We have God. We have his church. And I think it also says again, if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, he is still taking applicants. We would love for you to join in on what Jesus is talking about here. It's also good to know that your Savior is praying for you as he prayed for them. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. He's talking specifically about those disciples, but clearly it applies to us as well. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus is obviously speaking a little bit prophetically here because in just a few hours he is, he is going to be crucified and eventually die. But then also watch this designation that he gives here. Holy Father, which is interesting. <laughs> you don't see that construction very much. And he's talking about the, the, the greatness and the holiness and the set-apartness of God. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, what he's talking about there is unity. Now, when we pick this passage back up in a couple of weeks, we're going to spend the whole time talking about unity there. Because it, that's what Jesus gets into in verse 20 all the way down to 26. But this notion of unity is incredibly important. And I just want to flag that in your mind. Now also, look at this in verse 12. And then we're going to go back and talk about the keeping them in the name here. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So let's work backwards here. Clearly, he's talking about Judas. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, that, that Judas, of his own volition, went and did this evil thing, betrayed Jesus. But clearly, it was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. And that, that's what Jesus is talking about here, that none was lost except that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But let's zero in on this phrase here, keep them in your name. Now, this, what he's talking about here on, uh, on the surface, is basically saying that they would be preserved and not fall away from the faith. That they would not be lost. That's what he's praying for. But this notion of keeping them in the name would have been very significant to them. In the Jewish culture, a name represented someone's whole personality, their character. You see this when the psalmist says, uh, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in horses. Some in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And what he was talking about there is he's saying, listen, people hook their proverbial anchor to all kinds of different ships that they think are going to be secure in this world, and invariably they all sink. But if you hook your proverbial anchor to the God of the Bible, even if your life, life sinks, you will not. Because his name is what preserves you. His character, all of his attributes, his glory that we've seen here in this passage. We trust in that. 
And so therefore, we can face whatever comes in life, not because we're very skilled at negotiating all of the challenges and turns in the world, but because our God to whom we are anchored is trustworthy. His character will sustain us. His character will keep us. That's what Jesus is praying for them and for us. Also like what uh, one writer, uh, is, is a mouthful here, Handley C.G. Moulet, he was the Lord Bishop of Durham, he said this, in thy name they were never allowed to wander out of that name, never to seek another name, one of their own imagining or developing, never to dream of safety and a home for their soul anywhere other than the revealed love of God, the author of life and the Holy Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And within that circle of knowledge of that God, that's where they were to be preserved. So let's make a little application of that. Are we seeking to anchor ourselves to any other name in this world? The name of our job? The name of our financial plan? The name of our own ability to solve problems and be skilled and work things out and pivot? Or are we trusting in the only name that is guaranteed to not let us down? Friends, if we anchor our lives to any other name in this world, we will invariably be disappointed. But if we anchor ourselves in the name of the God of the Bible, we will be sustained. So let's listen to and lean into what Jesus was praying for those early disciples. Also like this, look at verse 13. It says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world... Look at this, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So if anybody tells you that Christianity is just this humdrum, just wait for the big jumbo jet of Jesus to come back and get us, just kind of hang on with a frown on our face, they don't understand the Christianity that Jesus was praying for here. It's a Christianity that leads to joy. This tells us about the heart of God right here, that they would have the joy of Jesus within them. And friends, I think this is significant because what is going to happen in just a few hours? Jesus is going to be mocked and ridiculed and have his beard ripped out and stripped naked in the streets. And in the face of all that, he is still praying that his disciples would know the joy that he has in his heart for them. I think that's compelling. That's something I want to be part of. And also look at the care that Jesus has in this. Look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word. So not just pithy statements and inspiring stories, but something they can hang on to and sink their teeth into. Your word. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what he's recalling here is what we saw, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, that we can't be surprised when the world hates us. Because if we don't march under their banner, naturally that is going to generate some heat. We will take some flack. 
And Jesus is acknowledging that yet again. And he's praying for his followers in the midst of that yet again. But I love Jesus' strategic leadership about that in verse 15 and 16. Look at this. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And this is really interesting. Because what Jesus is speaking to here is something that the capital C church has wrestled with for centuries. And there's a lot of debate and kind of a spectrum here of how people handle engagement with the world. There's, there's one crew far on this side that basically takes whatever you want to call it, the, the compound approach, we'll say. We're going to get some land, we're going to move out to the far whatever, we're going to churn our own butter, we're going to have our own water, and we are never, ever, ever under any circumstance going to interact with the people who don't know Jesus. Okay, That's, that's way over here. Then on the other side, you have folks that are like, hey man, got to be missionaries, we're going to be completely and exactly like the world in every possible way, not going to think too much about sin or holiness or repentance, because we gotta be, we gotta be out there. We gotta be telling people. And then you have this crew over here that actually ends up just looking a lot like the world, but doesn't really do much telling people about Jesus. So that's not the compound approach. That is the emulation approach. So here you got isolation. Here you got emulation. And what Jesus is praying for is this awkward, difficult tension somewhere in the middle that we would call legitimate gospel mission. It's hard. There's a tension there because we do need to be separate and called out and different and holy. And we need to be very conversant in what's going on in the world. And we need to be, to the degree that is legitimately okay, seeking to fit in so that our presentation of the gospel makes sense and is not any additionally weird. We need to find that balance in the middle. And so the answer is not isolation, it's not assimilation or emulation, it is mission, somewhere in the middle. That's what Jesus is praying for there. Look back at it again. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And one thing that I find especially compelling about this, and some people suggest, and I think they're probably right, that the way this is going to happen is actually through the next thing that Jesus prays for here in 17 to 19. Look at this. So he says this stuff about living in the tension. That's what he's praying for. But then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So the way that we live in this messy mission middle is by being sanctified by the word. And if we're really sanctified by the word and that's what we seek to do, we're going to know the compound approach goes too far in this direction. We're going to know the act just like everybody else goes too far in this direction because the word pulls together the picture of Jesus 
who came and was so immersed in the culture that one of the beefs against him was what? That he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet somehow in the midst of all that, he never, ever sinned. Now, that's Jesus. And we're not Jesus, okay? So we're not going to pull that off. But the example that he gives of being in the world but not of the world is as relevant today as it was 2,000 plus years ago. Sanctify them in the truth and your word is truth. So how do we get at this? Well, I think there's a bunch of different ways, but let me give you just a couple of things. This is why sitting under faithful preaching of the word is so important. It's not the only way that God sanctifies us and grows us in the truth, but I think it is the primary way. And when I say sitting under, I don't mean simply gathering in this room together, though I do think that is special and unique. There is something special that happens when the whole family gets together and somebody stands here and says, this is what the Lord is saying to us. I think that's special. But inundating ourselves every way and every chance we get with the word, that's how we live in that messy middle. Because it's going to pull you toward holiness and it's going to pull you toward people who don't yet know Christ. It's not either or, it's both. And the word helps, keeps us, helps keep us balanced in that. It's also interesting here too that the, the word that is used here when he talks about sanctify them. It means to make holy and to set apart for service. One of the commentators used this example. He said that he is praying that the, the disciples would be like the, the good china that you get out when the family comes to visit. When the special visitors come, like that stuff is set away and we get out the good stuff when these people are coming. And the way he does that is through the word. So keep listening to the sermons. Keep podcasting other material. Talk about it in community group. Grow in your knowledge of that in your personal time with Jesus. And let's be set apart through the word to be of good gospel use on mission in this world. So let me ask a couple of questions here. Where do you need some help? Is it in rebalancing this perspective? Or are we too far in this direction or too far in this direction? And either way, the Lord is saying, hey, come back. Come back to the place of tension where you're in, but you're not of. Where you're around, but you're not embracing. Where you are engaged, but you're not emulating. What's the Lord saying to you about that tonight? Next thing, what's he saying to you about your engagement with the word? For some, it could be, man, this is going great. Keep the pedal down. You're learning more about the Bible now than you ever have. High five for that. But for others, it might be thinking, you know what? There's probably a little bit of time that I'm wasting in some way that, that could be redeemed here to help me in this way. Final thing I would say, we are also the church that really wants to help people grow in this way. And I know it's happening. Because I know some people are meeting with other people for the strict purpose of helping them understand the Bible. That makes me so happy as a pastor. 
Because what that's going to lead to is exactly what Jesus is praying for here. That we would be sanctified by the word and useful for gospel mission in the world. Now, let's draw it all together. Only two points tonight. But man, there's a lot to think about. Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. And I wonder, in a final analysis, what is sticking out to you the most? If you're here and you don't yet know Jesus or you don't know if you know Jesus, hopefully it's the things that I said about becoming a child of God, about embracing true eternal life. And in just a minute, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but meet me in the back and you take Christ. For the rest of us, what is it that the Lord is saying to you? There could be so many different things that he's laying on us tonight through this passage. Let's lean into that. But finally, let me leave you with this piece of gospel encouragement. At the end of Jesus' life, with just a few hours remaining, of all the different things that he could have been doing, he was praying for his disciples, and he was praying for you. He was praying for you. And I hope that that makes you feel loved. I hope that makes you feel cared for. I hope that reminds you that you are not alone in this world. You have him, you have his church, you have his spirit. And I want you to also know that this same Jesus, he's praying for us now. He is interceding for us and he has given us his word to help us not just live in this messy middle of mission, but to thoroughly furnish us for every good work. So wherever it is tonight that you feel the most beat up or the most confused or the most off in the woods, the Lord is with you right there. The Lord is for you right there. Jesus is praying for you. Oh, Lord, we are very thankful for this passage. We are very thankful for the profound impact that it has had on Christians for millennia now. And, Lord, we ask for a similar impact on us tonight. As we've learned some things, as we've been challenged by some things, as we've been encouraged by many things. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take this word and drive it down deep into our hearts and that you would cause it to bear much fruit and that you would glorify yourself through this time that we've had gathering around this book. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.